This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. party people how the hell are you welcome to another episode of stark reality this time with journalist writer and filmmaker ben norton who has tons of articles and videos up at gray zone news and also up on rockfin he also co-hosts the moderate rebels podcast with max blumenthal and has his own show called propaganda today but uh less people might not know this but ben's been playing in bands for decades he's a guitarist musician kind of on the sort of metal hardcore punk also a jazz fan his project is called peculate they have a new album your own personal abyss kind of mixing jazz metal classical screaming noise all kinds of stuff ben is a a proud metalhead and we talk about all the different kind of styles of metal. Not my total strongest musical suit, but, uh, you know, I'm down. And uh, also jazz, talking about sort of like Avant, Third Stream, Fusion, stuff like uh, Bitches Brew and also Naked City. We get into propaganda and media, military influence in like TV and film, social media, trying to make a living as a musician in New York and the surprising and annoying popularity of K-pop in Latin America. Ben lives in Nicaragua and this was recorded October 29th, Yeah, that sounds fun. I mean, it's it's always fun to go to those clubs where they play like soul and this and like even some disco and stuff. I mean, some of that stuff's really cool. I mean, I love Earth, Wind and Fire, Early Soul. It's really good. Yeah, no, there's I mean, that's something I've been collecting and playing for a long time. So that's that's literally endless, though. uh, Your record is uh, definitely in a different direction. (laughs) Just a little bit. (laughs) Very different. Do you want to, uh, by the way, we have Ben Norton here. I guess we should uh, just get into it. Why not? But uh, tell me about um, your sort of, I know a lot of people know you from, you know, your writing and uh, videos, a lot of excellent political analysis that we can get into in a bit, but uh, probably don't get talk about your music side too much. So this is actually one of the points of uh, me doing this podcast is kind of like just taking people I like and being like, hey, they know, they don't just write about, you know, fake Uyghur genocide. <laughs> you know, there's like other things going on in their lives. So t- tell us about uh, your whole music background and stuff. Yeah, well, people probably know, you know, I'm a journalist and I spend most of my, you know, work and energy 
being a journalist, doing political work, talking about politics. I mean, I think that's really important. And I do that in my music as well. But since I've been a teenager, you know, for most of my life, for over 20 years, I've been playing music. And I've, when I was a kid, I was really into punk and hardcore. I mean, I'm still into punk and hardcore, but I got into it when I was really young in my early teens, even before I was into politics and before I started getting into student activism and all of that. And I started playing guitar and started playing keyboard and piano and try to pick up some drums and stuff. And I just always had a big passion for music. And part of it is just not going crazy. Like if I didn't have music, I would, I would go insane working, especially in something like politics in journalism where everything is so depressing and there's so much horrible shit happening in the world. We can cuss by the way, right? I don't oh know yes, absolutely. Like, yeah. Yes. This is a very <laughs> un- this is a very unprofessional professional podcast. We you know, it's just conversations. But I no, I totally get it and I respect like people I know I think like breakthrough news and stuff. They're they want to hit a, as much of an audience as possible. So I totally get it. But no, we're we're having well, a conversation like, here though. You I've know? done some radio stuff in when I was in New York, like at um WBAI and I know there they get like fined if people say so. Well, yeah, words. because like, yeah, I'm I, I'm on WFMU uh for many years and it's the same deal when you're on the actual airwaves. It's sort of different with like the internets, but when you're on uh, the yeah, airwaves yeah, yeah. then the FCC gets involved. So okay. then all those kind of fines like, you know, when you know, I guess what was it like Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake, like the Super Bowl and all that stuff. <laughs> you know, like if you remember that madness, you know. Yeah, yeah. So they, you know, they it's and you know politics, so you know they've kind of like used these things and like increased the fines more and more. So for a smaller station like you know BAI or uh, WFMU, you know, it's not like they're ABC. So these fines went from being like seven thousand dollars to like a hundred thousand dollars. So. Wow. It becomes like a very real thing. And, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. Anyone can report it, you know. So it's sort of like all the millions of listeners, all it takes is like one troll, basically, exactly. <laughs> to report to the FCC. And then you're on like double secret probation for a while. So it's it's just a big headache. So that's why they are kind of adamant about that stuff. Yeah, well, so anyway, so I got into hardcore when I was in my early teens and that kind of got me into anarchism politically as well. And my politics evolved a lot from there, but you know, I was always just into music just because I enjoyed it. And when you think about politics, like why do you do a lot of this political work? Why do I do this political work? It's because we want to have a better world. It's because we want to have a more equitable world in which we all have more free time to do stuff we like. And Honestly, like if you think about like what is human liberation, it's like not having to do these awful shitty jobs where you're paid almost nothing and you have to work 60 hours a week. It's like the, the one of the goals of human liberation is that we want to have free time. And like, what would I do in my free time? You know, what do I do in my free time? I make music. I love music. I listen to music. And I've always been into punk, hardcore, metal, post-hardcore stuff, metalcore, tech death mathcore a lot of a lot of stuff but mostly heavy stuff well actually also jazz which we can talk about i'm really into jazz and another thing that's related to that is that you know i started playing guitar and playing punk and and rock and all that and then by the time later in high school and by college i was really into jazz and i was playing a lot of jazz 
And there's a small scene. It's not that big, but there's a small scene of metal musicians who also are jazz musicians and try to combine like forms of progressive metal and and other heavy forms of, you know, subgenres of metal with jazz. And that's something that I'm really into. And it's not a huge scene, but there are a few bands. And obviously, if you listen to to my project, Peculate, I mean, it's it's jazz metal. There's a lot of jazz in it. Yeah, but there's it really, also insanely heavy parts. Yeah, it really kind of just goes back and forth and almost kind of morphs into different some of the songs. And then some of them are almost like a straight sort of like uh, clear the palette you know, almost like classical or, you know, but yeah, some of the songs just really kind of jump around quite a bit. So, um, would you say, and go ahead, sorry. Yeah. Well, and by the time in high school and college, you know, I, I'll just, I'll just say it. Like I'm a music nerd. Like I, I really got into like learning music theory and all that and into avant-garde composers. And I, pretty late i mean I, I when i was a kid i didn't really play any music I, it wasn't until i was a teenager and I, and i came into everything through rock and punk and it kind of fell backwards but like down the stairs and started getting more into some classical stuff especially you know the thing about classical music is that when people say classical music oftentimes the the person listening will think like vivaldi or mozart like they're stuck in this idea of 18th century what's called common practice period music which is very tonal and consonant and sometimes often boring frankly but i'm really into avant-garde more experimental contemporary classical modernist classical especially like early 20th century mid 20th century and that's at the time when a lot of classical composers i mean the term classical kind of becomes useless because classical in that context often more means just the instrumentation. They're writing for strings, they're writing for brass, they're writing for chamber ensemble or orchestra. But in terms of the musical content, it's nothing at all like Mozart and Vivaldi and, and Haydn and all of the, the early classical with a capital C composers. So I'm really into... Well, it almost know, seems like it's sort of like avant-garde jazz it's the avant-garde side of classical which then of course starts to get away from all those structures you know and i mean i'm not like super super versed in that but i do like some kind of like tape music and music concrete and i remember looking for like Giannis Zanakis records and stuff like that i think he's like a greek composer that uh did a lot of kind of like some of that sort of out i mean considered classical but it's definitely much almost more like noise yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and if you're talking about Musée Concrète, then definitely you have people like uh, Edgar Varese, yeah. Karl Heinz Stockhausen. Exactly. And and you mentioned Yanis Zanakis, who is an amazing composer. And there's there's definitely a huge crossover. People probably know of the Beatles, of course. The Beatles were inspired by Karl Heinz Stockhausen. And, and you hear some of that in like number nine, number nine, like right, the, right, right. The, the White Album. But also Zappa for me was a really hugely influential figure. And that also is kind of where politics comes in, comes in. I mean, I have very different politics from Zappa, but I, I mean, Zappa was a genius. I, I really respect what he was doing so much. And especially in, in from the, the angle of getting into music, music concrete and getting into avant-garde classical music, 
in and his and early even days. Like his, tr- his tracks are almost like collages, and it's sort of like you can kind of see that in some of your tracks. It's almost like it morphs from one thing into another into another. But I mean, you know, returning themes, you know, but uh, those first yeah, couple of Zappa idea. records are just like 20 minute rando, you know, just like, yeah, classic stuff for sure. You know, well, and he and, and he kind of gets is, jazzy as well too. It's sort of jazz and rock mixing. Yeah, well, what what happened in the 20th century, like in especially in the 60s and 70s, with a lot of avant-garde jazz and free jazz, and the the creation of kind of hybrid movements, the, the kind of barriers, the traditional barriers between so-called classical music and jazz, kind of broke down, and it kind of became one big amorphous scene. And that's, I'm really into that. You know, like you're talking about the music scene in New York. Like I used to go to a, when I lived there, I used to go to a ton of jazz shows, especially free shows, experimental jazz. Nice. And that's dope. And like the, the distance between like the, the, the dividing line between experimental avant-garde jazz and, and avant-garde classical music is basically non-existent. It's basically the same thing. And yeah, they're almost like coming at it from two different canons, but they're kind of arriving at the same sort of thing, which is an absence of structure. You know, you're just vibing it in a way, you know. Yeah. And and usually, I mean, if you think about like what jazz is, usually people will say, well, it's it's a combination of African rhythms, European harmonies and then improvisation. And that's a simplification. But, you know, those are kind of the three main elements, African rhythms, European harmony. But but they take European harmony, like tertian harmony. I don't want to get too technical, but they take like tertian harmony, which is European harmony, but then they expand it further with like seventh, ninth, thirteenth chords, quartal harmonies, quintal harmonies. And then improvisation is obviously one of the main elements of jazz. And in classical music, for most of the history of classical music, which really just means like art music, I, I don't like that term, but people refer to it as like European art music, but it's not it's not a great term either because then there's like American. Anyway, whatever. But the point is that <laughs> one of the main dividing lines historically was improvisation. But in a lot of avant-garde experimental classical music, you see this with John Cage and a lot of experimental 20th century so-called classical composers. There's It's all improvisation or huge parts of it are improvisation. So the, the like the the breakdown, the dividing line between jazz and classical just really broke down, and then there were these really amazing composers like Gunther Scholler, who's not super well known, but Gunther Scholler was one of the composers in this movement called the Third Stream, which yeah, really. So I was actually going to just bring that up, Third Stream, which I don't know a ton about, but I remember that was like a thing in the sort of fifties and sixties, which was a combination of jazz and classical. And I think like the modern jazz quartet was kind of into that a bit. I think they did a third stream record. Absolutely. And there's there's so many good examples of cool third stream music. But really what I try to do is combine third stream with with modern metal. <laughs> okay. I <laughs> like can kind of no, I totally that that actually wow, that's pretty good. See, that's good. That's almost like your uh your pitch for your movie based on your band. So so give, yeah. so give it to me, Ben. What is it? Well, it's third stream mixed with metal. You know, it's like art ensemble of Chicago meets Meshuga is the idea. Nice. I mean, you know, I think it's cool. Like I, I remember like I'm not I'm kind of more like versed in punk and like garage rock and stuff, you know, less than metal, though. I do appreciate metal like anything raw. I appreciate. And I remember seeing uh, there was kind of these 
mixing of like almost like it's like jazz doom metal kind of stuff there's a lot of variations on metal there's just endless endless genres of it you know it's kind of crazy yeah i mean i i am a metalhead i i'm not in any way like ashamed of saying that i love metal i still i i've loved metal for decades and i'm still really into it and and the thing about metal is that what's funny is a lot of metal fans or metalheads what do you want to call us we hate like we there's like a certain like five percent of metal that of metal subgenres that we love with a passion and then there's 95 percent or maybe not 95 percent but there's like a huge percentage of other metal subgenre subgenres that we hate so it's funny that like whenever i talk to people who are in the metal we always have to see like specifically like what kind of subgenres and for people who aren't into heavy music it might seem like i don't get like it's deathcore tech death metalcore doom grindcore mathcore yeah thrash uh, british wave of heavy of heavy metal like they don't get the difference but there's a huge huge difference and not to get like really technical into music theory but i often point out that there is way more in common with like the like the original british wave of heavy heavy metal bands you know black sabbath even iron maiden and like a lot of the early stuff there's way more in common between those bands and pop music than modern metal like modern metal actually people think they sometimes think it's really weird that i'm into jazz and experimental classical and all this and also metal but honestly a lot of modern progressive metal and experimental metal a lot of that has way more in common musically with jazz and experimental classical music than it does with iron maiden and black sabbath just in the sense that they have the same instruments as Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath, but in terms of the harmonies, the atonality or tonality, the melodies or lack thereof, the the, it's the, the whole the whole rhythm. approach of it, the whole approach of it, and and, and you from, and you can't really perspective of music theory, yeah, it, it has you, way more in common, yeah, and you can't really say these people can't play. I mean, when those guys are doing like some double tom drum, like the drummers are just insane <laughs> in these well, bands, especially the drummers, yeah. But I mean, yeah, people. They obviously have crazy chops and just arrangements. And I mean, how much of your tracks were improvised? Because it seems like, you know, you're, you're kind of going from one sort of vibe into another. Is that is it kind of like highly composed or how do you kind of put together these tracks? Because well, you're doing depends. all the music, right? Yeah, well, so I've been in different bands, mostly, you know, hardcore, post-hardcore metal bands for the past two decades or so. And... But the, the project, the solo project that I've had for about eight years now is called Peculate, um, and which is like speculate without the S. Peculate, I often say people are like, what is that? Peculate, it actually is a word, but I always say that like when poor people steal, it, when poor people take something, it's stealing. When rich people steal, they don't steal, they peculate. Yeah, it's, I had to look like that up because for... I didn't know if it was some sort of septic thing. <laughs> no offense. I was like, what does this mean? It's like no, Pepto-Bismol like, or like something. No, but yeah, no, it's embezzlement. Exactly. We have all these words for when rich people do something, even though they're stealing more money, they, they don't steal, they peculate. Well, they embezzle, you got but... to get the thesaurus out so you can whitewash this shit, basically. <laughs> I mean, I also just picked the word because I liked it. It was simple. and no, no, it's there good. No I like bands. it. I like it. Yeah, there are no other bands with the name, but... So in this, this is a solo project that I've had for like eight years or so. And, and I've been on and off. I took a break for a few years, but I recently released this new record and yeah, all of it, all of the music is, is from me. I wrote it all. And 
sometimes I do improvise on some records, but this is actually all written out. It's all composed. And actually, I mentioned you know, I'm a music nerd. I actually, I literally use a, I compose it with a compose, a composition software that I've been using for many years called Sibelius, like, which is what classical and jazz composers use. And there are a few of us out there, not that many, but there are some metal bands and, you know, some solo artists in, who are into like experimental metal and rock. We all, we, yeah, I compose it like a classical composer and then I just record everything. So I actually have sheet music. I release sheet music for all of my music for people who are That's nerdy wild. like me. That's hilarious. That's really wild. Uh, how long did it take you to put together the record? I mean, uh, do you kind of just work on it between projects or? Yeah, I mean, just on and off in my free time. I, obviously, I work a lot with the gray zone in journalism, so I don't have a ton of free time. But, you know, on weekends and when I have free time, I, I just I really enjoy I really just get a lot of pleasure out of writing music playing music it's one get, of well like you said you, the... you got to keep your sanity especially when you know <laughs> when you have the kind of journalist that you are if you're like anti-imperialist then yeah the world is a very depressing place especially you know you guys at the gray zone are, are always kind of breaking these stories so i mean it's i think what y'all are doing is very very important but yeah it's also depressing <laughs> you know you're really like you know just fighting so many I was kind of like looking at different things to talk to you about. And it's you literally you could just be talking for hours and hours and hours on all these various subjects of all the different things going on in the world that this that is happening. It's kind of crazy. I mean, you were just talking about, uh, you know, that there was a plot on uh, the um, Bolivian president, Luis Arce, that wasn't even really covered in American media. The same people that kind of killed the uh, Haitian president. Yeah, exactly. So. What's what's funny is that people think that it's kind of weird that I'm into metal, but actually it's a great way to take out a lot of that. that yeah, exactly. No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> like in in this project, Peculate, I, I I would never say that like I'm a very good singer, but I I have some singing, but it's mostly screaming. I've been I've been screaming like it's it sounds ch cheesy and dumb, but actually like. Screaming actually is a kind of skill you have to develop. Anyone who like has tried to scream along with a metal or punk song can see that like if you do one song and you don't do it correctly, if you don't know how like you kind of blow out your voice, right? <laughs> after one song, so right, right. I, since I was a teenager, I've been into this stuff, and I started like learning how to scream properly. And I've been in some metal bands where I like screamed, and and in this project, most of the vocals, I would say like two thirds maybe our screams like growls and screams so and and i do all i do that and it's fun and it's also like a really good way to to it's very therapeutic yeah i mean there's just a lot of, to scream about in this world i mean it's just it's crazy you know like just i think someone was kind of like talking about you know just in terms of the uh, justice system that we have you know the assange kind of like dystopian like he's watching his viewing from like video you can't even go to it and then the uh businessman alex saab also being picked up and then steven dongzinger also going to jail from you know courtesy of chevron it's just crazy it's crazy yeah there's there's a lot to scream about and and this is where i mean of course my music is going to have to be political so the the lyrics are very political they deal with a lot of these issues 
but at the end of the day, like, I mean, and I do think I spent a lot of time thinking about the, the lyrics and I try to make them, you know, kind of poetic and I, I put time and effort into it. But at the end of the day, like in a lot of metal, the most important point is the music itself. Because obviously a lot of the lyrics are screamed, but you know, they're, they're, I'm not, this is, it's not to say that like the stereotype that metal vocalists don't think about their lyrics is true. It's not. I mean, there are really good lyricists in metal and post hardcore. In fact, Keith Buckley from Every Time I Die, they just released a new record and he, he's a brilliant, he's one of the most brilliant lyricists out there today. And so there are like really good kind of poetic lyricists, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the music is, is clearly kind of the main point of a lot of metal and of my music. And you asked like how long I've been working on this. Well, I, I of course I've had, I've been juggling a lot of different projects in terms of journalism at the same time. So I'm always pretty busy, but in my free time over, over the past year, I've been working on this record. So it's really a product of the last year. And especially like with, with COVID and like the lockdown and all this and everything being on zoom and, and all that, like, part of the lyrics kind of deal with that I, the lyrics kind of deal with the idea of like techno feudalism how i mean it's 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 actually kind of great that we had scheduled this interview several weeks ago and you know today's october 29th and just yesterday october 28th facebook announced yes, this metaverse the shit. Meta. i think there was someone on twitter that like had uh called that out in a couple months like watch it facebook's going to change their name to like meta or something which was very prophetic but it's it's also kind of typical and actually i sort of like noticed something uh you know with um zuckerberg like sort of like with that avatar it's like he kind of his haircut is like an avatar haircut he looks like a video game character yeah. i finally figured out like why would you have that horrible haircut it's like you look like an avatar you look like a video game but yeah, yeah that's no, I, ridiculous and, it's ridiculous and the fact that this guy who's one of the most powerful people on earth one of the richest human beings in human history and he is now like I mean, this whole metaverse thing, it doesn't look fun. It looks actually horrible. And it's just, <laughs> it looks like another digital prison. And so a it's lot like of, the Ready you know, Player One straight to video sequel or something. Yeah. <laughs> As if that like was Lawn a good Mower movie. Man, really. yeah. you know, <laughs> Tron. Yeah. Like, that's what it looks like. Hilarious. And, and the lyrics, you know, they kind of deal with that, like with this whole like kind of techno feudal world that we're in where it's like everything is run by these corporations and we have to like attend our work calls on zoom and but now like we can our work call where our boss is giving us 10 hours of work for our day well we can do it like on mars in the metaverse it's just like it has like the trappings of being fun and cool and hip and creative but actually it's just another way of of like exploiting people and making us do shit we don't want to do and like so that well, and also as someone, I, I don't know if it's like an onion headline, but also just ignoring the problems of the real world, because now you have this meta world that you're creating. So now you don't have to pay attention to what is actually going on in the real world, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And, and a lot of, or it's, even pay attention know, to what Facebook does or what Twitter does, you know, <laughs> I mean, just like, didn't, didn't they just delete or suspend some Nicaraguan accounts, right? Yeah, I mean, they do it all the time. They constantly yeah, ridiculous. suspend anyone that, that challenges U.S. government talking points. And, I mean, it, it the timing couldn't be any better for this interview with this metaverse shit because, like, this is a lot of, like, the reason this album I just released, it's called Your Own Personal Abyss. And it's like a tongue-in-cheek thing. Like, you have, 
like that's um, it's about like social media and all this and th- th- that's what i'm really saying is that like that's what all of this stuff is is it's your own personal abyss and it's the whole nietzsche quote right like nietzsche said you know you stare into the abyss and the abyss stares back and one of the one one of the lyrics i have in in one of the songs the, the first song is called a safe space to rot you know, like this whole, like social media is a safe, safe space, space, right? Yes. Safe it's a safe spaces. space to open up. It's a safe space to rot. And what one of the lyrics is, I say in there is that, look at all the progress we've made. When we speak into the abyss, it now speaks back. Like that's, that's all the social media shit is like, we just cry out into this like empty digital void. And then we get like some mirror image coming back to us, but it's just all like, it's all a digital abyss. It's all this cyber void that's just owned by these billionaire oligarch companies. They can turn it off immediately. They can destroy it. They can, they can censor us and erase us immediately. And now they want us to like go even further deeper into their abyss with like this dumb VR shit that, that, like the they'll, that they'll just have all the controls to it. I mean, I'm you guys at the gray zone uh, earned that uh, special, special label from Twitter, right? For yeah. that one Reuters story, I mean, they've they've never used that label on anyone else, right? Well, they have since actually. Oh, okay. That was okay. that was the first time. Yeah, for people who don't know, on Twitter, that was a classic so one, though. My colleague Max Blumenthal wrote this article with these documents that were published by these people who call themselves anonymous. So we don't know exactly where they came from, but uh, the the British government, which the the leaked documents came from the British government, claimed they were hacked. So then Twitter. My colleague Max Blumenthal wrote an article about this and Twitter put up a warning for anyone that posted the article that Max published at the Gray Zone. Anytime you posted the article, it said this, these may have been obtained from hacked materials. So like, so. But it's very like, you know, they only give that to sort of stories they don't really like. Like there's plenty of times the Guardian or the New York Times has used quote unquote hacked materials and does not get that label. All the time. But of course, those hacked materials come from the Chinese government or the Iranian government, exactly. right? So when they come from the British government, okay, well, then then Twitter's going to censor it. And it, it comes down to like, obviously, I'm a very left wing guy, but it comes down to even like Twitter and Facebook censoring the the Biden, the Hunter Biden emails, oh, which was right. clearly that's right. I mean, like, I, as much as I hated Trump, that was clearly a blatant, um, a blatant example of them meddling in the U.S. election on on behalf of a presidential candidate. Like that was crazy, and it shows the power all of these social media unaccountable, huge big tech corporations have. And again, like that's the album is your own personal abyss. We all have our own personal <laughs> customized abyss. We all have like our own personal brands. We have our own personal abyss, and we can shout into the that the digital void. And we can now the void shouts back at us. But at the end of the day, it's Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and all of them who who control all this shit. Yeah, no, it's it's it is a dystopia like we really are. It's very I mean, I I know like who's it, Caitlin Johnstone or whatever has has been writing about that. Yeah, She's awesome. Um, But it's like, yeah, it's very dystopian. It's very dystopian. I mean, you don't really need to revive Black Mirror. We're living it for reals. Yeah. You know, well, no, I mean, the, the famous thing about Black Mirror is that they published this, they, they published, they released this episode about, you know, I'll, I'll kind of censor a little bit because 
I don't know if this is a family program, but no, it's, not, not, a fa- but, it's not a family program. Say whatever you the know, fuck you they, want. They had this episode where the British prime minister is like fornicating oh, yeah, fucking, with uh, the pig's a pig, head. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then no, I didn't really like it, that one. And I didn't watch Black Mirror for a while. And then I'm like, some of the other ones, I'm like, all right, they're kind of hit and miss sometimes. But, but anyways, yeah, go ahead. To, no, I mean, like in Black Mirror, he has to like rape a pig. And then in real life, the conservative prime minister of Britain, David Cameron, it came out that when he was in college, he was part of like this insane, like skull and bones style youth, like group with all the rich, like Jeffrey Epstein, rich elites. And he, he had to like, he had to stick it in a dead pig head. And that was like a huge scandal in Britain after, after black mirror. So it's just like, I know. We live in something crazier than Black Mirror. I know. It really, really is crazy. And the media, I mean, you've been doing this whole series on a rock fan. I mean, you have the Moderate Rebels podcast and and many, many, many articles, but uh, you've been doing this thing called Propaganda Today, which I've been enjoying, which is kind of like, because that's some one of the things that I think just following these kind of like politics is that you just see the power of the media and just how... I don't know just how insipid it is like they really just keep they squeeze every type of thing like you were you know we were talking about like that sort of you know peculate like whitewashing these terms but you know in one of your recent videos talking about that assassination plot you were talking about that Reuters article where they mentioned that Luis Arce like swept to power it's like <laughs> they always are like using this kind of shit for like countries they don't like like you know like hard-handed or whatever you know authoritarian like they just use these terms for for one country and then something else it's passive it's always a passive voice for like the oppressor like an officer involved shooting like who shot who you don't even know you know yeah well and i point out in that video that that reuters article about the just really briefly for people who don't know this is that the there was a Miami-based contractor, a kind of military contractor, paramilitary firm that was hired to bring these Colombian paramilitaries to Bolivia to kill the democratically elected socialist president Luis Arce after the coup, backed by the U.S. This is back in the Trump administration. So uh, anyway, Reuters they did like a very propagandistic piece about it, but then they they quoted Bolivia's interior minister. But then they took out the part of his quote. They put like the three dots, the ellipsis. They took out the part where he mentioned the Miami contractor and only mentioned the Colombian paramilitaries. So it's just like, I mean, that's like, that's it's literally just taking a, a, yeah, it's like taking the white out. Let me just, let's just white out that quote so that people won't connect this to America, even though it was like, yeah, it was like kind of a shady Miami group because some of the people that flew in, flew in from the States, right? Yeah from the US and from Colombia. But I mean, this also comes back to music too, because if you look at how all of these social media companies have now monopolized music, when I, I remember when I was in some other bands, like in, in high school and college, and like this is back in early or very early days of YouTube. Um, remember like in, so I graduated college in 2013. And I remember that like when I was in my, like in some bands then, I guess it's probably like, when was YouTube? I guess YouTube started around then, like 2008, 2009 is when it started getting really big. And I remember like we used to st- release stuff on YouTube, like with these old bands I was in and they would, they would actually be promoted in the algorithm. Not like, not on the main page. Right. But like 
you would get a lot of organic traffic in the early, like in 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, you would get organic traffic if you were in a band and you were trying to promote your, your music. But nowadays, like indie music, you can't get promoted at all because the algorithm only promotes the big record companies. So there, you know, there was always this idea of going, going back to like the, ridiculous propaganda and stereotypes of like the the internet being like this this great libertarian experiment where we all can have a voice and it democratizes the world that's not at all what happened i mean that it never really existed as yasha levine a brilliant journalist has shown in his work but yeah it's i gotta read i gotta especially read not true now where the only musicians that are promoted on youtube and, and instagram and all this are the the big famous musicians that already have a record label or like every once in a while there are like a few exceptions of these people who go viral right but indie music it's like it's there's so many great independent musicians i know so many great independent musicians who play not just metal but so many genres and their music gets ignored because it's all based on the stupid algorithm yeah it's hard to kind of like cut through in terms of like you have to get some sort of momentum. It's sort of the based on the the number of likes or whatever. So it is. It's kind of warped. It's sort of like things are kind of shoved to you in a way, as opposed to like trying to find things organically. I mean, that's the whole thing about the algorithms. It's sort of like they're trying to steer things towards you, which of course also in terms of politics and stuff. Because didn't that come out that uh, you know Twitter was regularly promoting like basically right wing stuff a lot more than left wing stuff, especially in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Twitter actually had to admit it recently in a report. And I mean, it's true in general of propaganda, like propaganda is constantly promoted on all these social media platforms. Facebook does it all the time. But what's interesting is that I think it's really important to talk about the political propaganda that they promote. But what's fascinating to me is that even though there is a discussion about that, there's zero discussion about how these platforms do the same thing for culture. Right. But that scene right. is okay. Like no one challenges that. Like people rightfully criticize, and I do this all the time, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube for promoting like corporate media propaganda, establishment propaganda, right-wing propaganda, neoliberal propaganda. But they do the exact same thing with like horrible shitty pop artists and all these big, big famous like celebrities that oftentimes are really awful musicians that are not creative, that have awful lyrics that, there's, there's just nothing unique or original about their music and they get promoted constantly and they help push culture in a particular way. And then all these, there's so many great uh, independent musicians and not just in metal. Like for instance, I love Neo soul. There's so many good Neo soul artists out there these days. Like there's a lot of cool, like people combining jazz and electronic music and soul. And there's so much cool stuff and none of that gets promoted in the algorithm. And like, and also like with, of course, underground hip hop and all this, like, it's not just metal, like metal has always been underground and punk has always been underground, but there's, there's so much good music. And I'm sure there's like so many good independent filmmakers and all of that who get totally ignored. Whereas like the algorithm always pushes up this shit. Like it, it frankly, that's what it is. It's like a lot of it's the worst of culture. Well, but you'll get promoted of say you're like Cuban rappers funded by the NED. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just kind of, it is funny, like, when they're all of a sudden like, yeah, we're promoting this culture. We care about race, you know, um, when it when it kind of fits some imperialist narrative. Because I know you guys had some really good stories on that, kind of tracking that one song that I think was being promoted on NPR. Yeah, Patria y Vida, yeah. which is, again, it's not even a very good song. Like, there's a lot of good Cuban hip hop, and it doesn't necessarily need to be, like, explicitly political but that's all going to be ignored and the only thing that's promoted is fucking pitbull like some of the worst yes. music ever <laughs> exactly and then he's getting on social media with the sos cuba thing so maybe that's why they get promoted right it's like you know good job you yeah know? I mean, good I'm, job I'm, yeah, but spreading, I'm making spreading two points. the shit like, you know it's the worst of both worlds politically and culturally like yeah. musically it's awful <laughs> well what was that um revolutionary left radio i forget the name of that podcast but they they were talking about like uh i forget like marx or Engels were talking talking about what you were kind of talking about at the beginning of the conversation that you know the world we live in doesn't really allow us to actually be completely free human beings like from a, you know a, you know like philosophy type of standpoint like not just even beyond the economics like we can't reach our full potential in terms of just being artistically or not because we're running around, whatever, delivering packages for Amazon or something, you know, that the world doesn't really allow us to be able to enjoy our life. You know, it, it limits it. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about just being like very theoretical, people can think about like what, what could a kind of, I hate the term utopia because it's often like, you know, speaking of Marx and Engels, they were very much against the utopian socialists of the 19th century, which was a particular movement of, the, you know, that's a long story historically, but they were against them. They were very much realistic, interested in politics of the here and now, which is something that I'm very in influenced by and very interested in. But anyway, if we do want to get kind of theoretical and think about like what could be an ideal vision of society, it's like, okay, everyone has a guaranteed job that it's like not... You know, I do think that like people should work like I don't think that like because it's not fair that some people have to like do we still have to have farmers. We still have to have all these things like we all have to have jobs and work, but like it should be like a fair amount of work. That's not insane, like a four or five, six hour workday or whatever. And we all have health care. We all have education. We all have like a place basic... to live. Like it's just yeah, it's like, funny how these things like get negotiated. Like they really should be just very basic things, you know? Yeah, like, like those things are not even that radical to demand. But the thing is, anyway, the point is that like it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The idea is like human psychologists who have studied humans know that we have like this hierarchy of things that we we need to survive, and like the first most important one is like food and oxygen and water, and then below that is like human contact and all that and i'm like so that it gets more and more as you go further up the pyramid or further down the pyramid rather it gets like things that are more and more like negotiable and like not as necessary to survive but the point is that like if you have all of your basic social needs met what do you do and i think the answer is art like art and culture and in socializing with your friends and enjoying like enjoying what they want to do yeah. partying enjoying and like for me, music is part of it. and movies like I'm really into movies. I, you know, a lot of a lot of people, especially these days, because we were all trapped in our houses for right, like right. a year, like people watch a lot of movies and TV shows and all this stuff. But like for me, music is an example of like if we actually if we had all of our social needs met, like if met, if there were not all these problems in the world, then we could spend a lot more time 
doing things that we like, which involves like making music and making art and writing and all of that. Or simply getting drunk and enjoying the Havana syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, and honestly, there's nothing at, there's no problem like with people who decide to get shit face and, and go party and have fun. Like that's part of life. And oh, like, but there honestly, is, there is a problem. And that's why we have a, a you know, a, a, a bill in Congress, right. To address this. <laughs> the whole... Well, no, I mean, but like, no, I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, but but what's funny is that, well, yeah, I know. But what's funny is that like, I'm actually saying that like there like an element of hedonism not not like not like over the top but like the point is of human liberation of like meaning everyone's net like like if we had like socialism and people had more free time and stuff they would have more free time to just go get shit faced with their friends and have fun and that's and that's a fun. good thing yeah exactly like no, that's definitely. enjoying your life no definitely. that's time you don't have to spend working your like overtime on your second job to pay for your kids tuition or yeah, whatever exactly. or exactly Exactly. Or even thinking maybe you don't need another kid because you can't afford it, even if you wanted one. You know, I mean, I don't. But I mean, that's the crazy thing. It just seems like the concept of having a kid or even going to college, you know, um, I mean, I went to college in the early 90s. It was just it's ridiculous how these things just get more obscenely expensive. And, uh, you yeah. know, you kind of just see like. I don't know. It just becomes tougher and tougher for people to even have that concept of affording college, affording a house, you know, it, having being able to afford kids. It's just nuts, you know. Yeah, I mean, and especially for people who are like artists or musicians and who are trying to make a living from it. I have sort friends. Of gets, yeah, they get thrown into like, well, you need health insurance for your kids, so you need to get a corporate job. So bye bye your art career or whatever. Yeah, I mean. Like I said, I've I've been playing music music for over twenty years now since I was like an early teenager. And what's interesting is that what's funny is like my friend groups have always been kind of compartmentalized. So I've always had like my political friends and my music friends, and sometimes they cross over. But like you know, even here, I mean, I'm in Nicaragua. I still like there aren't as many, but I still go to some metal shows here and punk shows. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that, um, but go ahead, finish your thought. Well, yeah, but what's funny actually here is there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of Sandinistas, like a lot of leftists who are metalheads too. But in like when I was living in New York, like I would have friends that I would go to metal shows with and punk shows with who were not, were, some of them were into politics, but some of them were kind of apolitical. And what's funny is that like a lot of them have become, have forced to become more and more political because they can't be musicians. It's like impossible, Wild. especially Wild. in New York. Yeah, it's so fucking expensive to yeah. just just live to just to have a roof over your head and food and public transportation and like to be able to to, to just survive. It's grueling and it's almost impossible to be a musician or any kind of artist. So almost all of my friends who are like musicians who at least used to kind of play like maybe like in the 90s or even in the early 2000s, they used to kind of make a living being a musician or whatever. They basically all had to get shitty jobs in order to be continue doing their music and art. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And that has ironically actually made them much more political now. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes there is like, you know, I guess sort of whatever you want to call it, the West Imperial core. There's maybe that apathy because you don't even really realize your privilege. And then when some of this stuff gets taken away, you're like, oh, you know, but I mean, just in terms of what we do to other countries, I mean that's what kind of just makes me just, I don't know. I get very angry about all this stuff. That's why I follow what a lot of you guys are posting and writing about because it's just, 
you should care about what's going on, even if it doesn't like very, very directly affect your life. But it is all interconnected in a way, you know. But yeah, I think when the circumstances start to happen more and more where you start to feel that, then, yeah, you you probably would be more apt to be political because it's now affecting your life and affecting what you can do or can't do, you know. Yeah. And, and something good that I've seen emerge really just being involved in like the kind of underground heavy music scene, like just heavy music in general. So hardcore, post hardcore, metalcore, death metal, a lot of different stuff like going to those shows for many years. I've seen that like at least in the U S and also other countries, but even in the U S like it has, I think gotten more political there, there Definitely was a phase when post-hardcore kind of became mainstream, if you remember. Like when I when I was still like in a lot of this, like in the scene, there was this phase like in like the early like the first decade of the 2000s when metalcore kind of became mainstream. Like Devil Wears Prada and all those bands became like an under oath and all of them. Like they became they were basically mainstream bands. And and now a lot of that, those bands have gone back to kind of being kind of underground and indie. And a lot of them have become more political again. August Burns Red and like, and it's good to see that those bands that kind of used to be more mainstream and kind of did sell out, frankly, a lot of those bands sold out, but they've gone back to those roots now. And I think the, the politics in a lot of hardcore, post-hardcore metal these days is, is really good. Like there's, it's for the most part, there are some exceptions like the red cord. I don't know if you know this band, the red cord, their vocalist became a fucking cop and he's a Trump supporter, but like excluding that, like there's, that's the, that's the huge exception to the rule. The majority of, of like, of all of like the core subgenre bands. So like the red cord is a death core band, but like most death core bands are leftist and a lot of metal core bands and punk bands, obviously. So like, it makes me like, feel a little better about like the direction the scene has gone in and that might be kind of niche but like I, I grew up as part of that scene and for me it was actually important to my political formation because I I you know I like a lot of kids in the U.S. I kind of grew up like in the suburbs I moved a lot but like I didn't really I didn't move, move to, to New York and so much later in my life like I didn't really live in big cities so and I, I went to high school in Louisville Kentucky so like being in like smaller areas smaller cities and like suburban areas like punk and like the kind of lefty you know a lot of it's kind of infantile frankly but it's still important like that that actually is important to a lot of people to get them involved and interested in leftist politics yeah i mean bands like dead kennedys and i grew up kind of i mean i listened to a lot of punk but grew up more in like the ska scene but you know bands, i love ska but bands like you know the specials and Obviously, all the original Jamaican stuff, which is OG, the Scatolites. But, I mean, the specials, you know, when I was 15, 16, and it's like a mixed race group, and you're reading about how they were like all kinds of riots and the National Front and just that whole scene back in the day in England in the 80s. And, yeah, so it kind of it definitely influenced me. Like, you know, I've always kind of leaned left, and then you kind of learn more. And that's where I feel like, you know, if you if you're curious and you care about the world, then you'll start to just unravel just all the many, many things like was I read Vijay Prashad's Washington Bullets, you know, that was probably the last book, book I read. And it's just it's crazy. It's just absolute like there's just so many things that just never even get mentioned. Like, you know, we're you I know that 
you and Max have worked on stuff in Nicaragua about the Nicaraguan coup, obviously the Bolivian coup, and you know, talking about what's going on in Ecuador. And it's just, it is, it's just endless. And and what I thought was interesting about Vijay's book is talking about, you know, the coups we don't even talk about, like the stuff in Guatemala, I guess, in what, the 50s and 60s. Indonesia. And, and Indonesia, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's just crazy. There's just so much stuff that is just not talked about. It's really insane. No, that's politically with my journalism and our work, that's what we try to do, right? And for me... Like I said, I can't I can't make music that if I'm going to write lyrics, they're always going to be kind of political or social commentary or whatever. But for me, like, that's one of the things I also just have always loved about metal and punk is that like it's kind of it's so natural to like it's kind of assumed that you automatically have that crossover. So for me, so a lot of people are confused or like, wait, Ben, Ben, who's this journalist? He's also like a metalhead and into punk. And it's like, yeah, I mean. What else? I mean, I do. I, mean, that's, I listen that, to other stuff too. No, I mean that's but like, the, like I said. It's political. That's the whole point of these these conversations, though, is that I feel like because yeah. you guys are doing so much good work, and it's very important to talk about. It's important to talk about Assange and all these people, that that becomes the sort of dominant thing when people like yourself are interviewed. But uh, you know, that's the thing is like people hang out, you know, and live their lives and have interests, and uh, so. I think, you know, it's just nice to, to show that other dimension of people of just things they're into while they're fighting the fight, you know, and even like you said, doing it within your art as well, you know, so. But, yeah, well, I'm, that's why I'm grateful for you having me on, because I haven't done a, an interview on music for years. I did. I used to do them a few years back, but I, I actually took a break for a while, too. And and it's really, it's nice to be able to talk about music and especially with someone like you who knows a lot about politics and knows about the intersection. And this is an interesting time right now. Like I think- Yeah, it is, th for there sure. Was, there was this moment where like kind of punk, you remember like in the, in the early Bush years, there was like this, it kind of became mainstream where like there was this, there was this mentality in a lot of even mainstream music of like being really against the Iraq war and against, against, Bush. I mean, you mentioned Dead or Kennedys. even or even like yeah, 80s Reagan, you know, like Reagan youth and all these different millions of dead yeah, but, cops. Well, but like even know. Jello Biafra came back in the Bush years and he was like running for president and on the Green Party ticket and doing all this stuff. And and I think what's interesting now is like some of those people have come back. Like, I don't know if you know if you know this band Body Count with Ice. Yeah, yeah Body Count, of course. Yeah. I mean, they're awesome. Like one of the original bands that tried to combine rap and hardcore and metal. And they actually just they recently got back together and released a new album. And it's pretty good. Nice. And, I'll have to check that. Yeah, kind of because I saw that they were playing or something. But uh, but they that, that that controversy back in the day, man, the cops were hating on those motherfuckers. Yeah. Cop killer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that was crazy. I mean, that's another thing is even talking about like uh, N.W.A. I mean, you know, I think in the movie they kind of mentioned that sort of Detroit show. But uh it is kind of crazy that, you know, if these bands start to get pretty big and it's really not, I don't know, they will kind of like step in and do shit. It's really kind of crazy. I mean, even the Dixie Chicks or whatever, I remember they were getting roasted on media. But but I do think yeah. like, you know, there's, there is, you know, I don't know, even just simple things like posting about, you know, Israeli apartheid for 10, 12 years and just, you know, obviously things just seem to keep getting worse and worse like you know whatever digging up graveyards to to make a theme park but i do think that 
generally people talk about that a little bit more. And I think that even though there is a lot of censorship and stuff, I also think there is people that are kind of aware and, you know, saying shit. So it is kind of an interesting time. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, I'm always so grateful too, for, you mentioned BDS and Israel. And if we're talking about music and politics, we have to talk about all of the artists that have yeah, that's a pet joined peeve the BDS of mine. movement. Like there, there are a lot of mainstream artists and of course, Roger Waters deserves the most credit. And it's funny. Cause like, I love Roger. He's, he's a friend of ours. He's, he's always been supportive of the gray zone. We've interviewed him and he's a great guy, but what's funny is he really hates metal. So we, <laughs> we never get to talk about music because like we are in the complete opposite directions musically, but politically we're on the same page. So that's one of those funny examples of where like, you know, I, I have friends who are into metal, but are not into politics. And then I have friends who are into politics, but hate my music. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's hilarious. And it's nice when people do know the time, because it seems like there is some people that do, but a lot of people that don't, or just don't pay attention on purpose. But, uh, Roger, you know, that's the thing. It's like this sort of celebrity culture. It's sort of like a lot of celebrities are just, they don't really have particularly great politics. It's its unfortunate because they could have a platform to really push stuff like Roger Water does. But how many people are like that doing that, you know? Yeah, there's so few. I mean, he, Roger is one of the best. He, politically, he's amazing. He's so consistent in and a lot of polit uh, politicians, a lot of musicians, well, politicians are dumb too, but frankly, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to sound like arrogant. I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I'm just saying that a lot of these celebrities, when they try to talk about politics, they're really ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about at all. And they just end up showing like how superficial U.S. politics is. So like people like Roger Waters are such a breath of fresh air because like Listening to him talk about politics, it's like he clearly knows what he's talking about. Well, yeah, but even with that recent SOS Cuba campaign, I mean, a number of DJs that I know that oh play Latin God. music and they just all fall for it. You know, they've even been to Cuba. I mean, I don't even speak Spanish. I One of these days I'm trying to learn. But, you know, it's like it just seems like why are you falling for these obvious CIA ops, in my opinion? But sometimes I think it's just... You know, if you're really educating yourself and you understand the structure and you understand that how the U.S. empire operates, i.e. it's full of shit and most of what they're saying is projection, then it's kind of easy to stop, you know, spot the propaganda. But if you kind of still think that NPR is left wing or you still think the you know, New York Times is reliable or AP is objective, then you're probably much more apt to fall for the shit. And it's that's one of the things that just is crazy. That's why I do appreciate like your propaganda today program because it's just amazing to me just how gullible people are. It's crazy, you know. <laughs> it's just it, it really works. Like you know, just even like all the bullshit China stories, even if a lot of them are lies. But then over time, you look at these polls, and less and less people trust China. So it just like that sort of blanket shit. It kind of works in a general way, even if. They have to refute the stories down the line. This sort of the messaging gets through. Exactly, and it's it's just a product of this propaganda, and it more it's especially clear in film and shows, like in music. Obviously, you know, you mentioned like the SOS Cuba shit, like that's obviously all propaganda, it's a psyop, but it's way more explicit in 
TV shows, like Netflix shows, movies, where it's so there's so much ideological conditioning, right? Like pushing propaganda talking points and all of this. And that's why like it's so important, I think, to encourage kind of like more underground culture and independent musicians and independent artists and filmmakers because so much of this is all just cultural engineering and it's political engineering too. It's this part of the same thing. So like how many, like for instance, a great example of this is that show um, Stranger Things. Oh yeah, the the I was going to bring that up, the third season. <laughs> it's like, like classic shit. It's like classic shit. Yes, this the, is the classic. The first two seasons, I mean, I, I've, I watched the show. Like it's a good show. I'm not really into that like 80s nostalgia stuff, but like it's a well done show. It's definitely not like one of my favorites, but uh, my my girlfriend really liked the show and I watched all three seasons with her. And the first two seasons were whatever, like, fine. I mean, it's a well-done show, but it's there's there's some political commentary. It's about, a little, like, small yeah, it's town. a little sticky. It's fine, though. Yeah, yeah like it's small TV. town American culture and stuff and gender and all that. And like, right. that, it's, it's harmless stuff. But then in the third season, out of nowhere, the Russians are coming. It's like the evil <laughs> Russians have built a lair to destroy the planet Earth with oh, like man. this evil villain from hell that is gonna like that's below the mall, which is the symbol of capitalism, of course. So the the evil Soviet communists are they've built their the bunker mall. under the mall, the symbol of great American freedom and capitalism, and they're gonna destroy us. It's just like. Like the propaganda can't be any more explicit. And and in that case, I honestly think the the two guys who made it, what are they called? The brother, the Duffel brothers or whatever. Like those guys, I listened to like some of their stuff. They're not very smart. Like politically, they're 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 very ignorant. Well, then there's also uh, and like they probably had no idea of the political implications, what they were dealing with. They were just like, oh, yeah, the, the Russians. Yeah, we'll have them blow up an Orange Julius stand and uh, get that American patriotism going. But, I mean, the other... Th um, yeah, it's just... Uh, I had another thought. I'm spacing on it. But there was another... Uh, t oh, yeah, Jim from The Office. What's that guy's name? Doesn't oh, he, he has, like, family in the CIA. And he's like He has, like, interviews giving props to the CIA. And then the funny thing is, though, again, real-life Black Mirror is that... You know, isn't that like what is it, Jack Ryan or what the hell the name? You know, the guy that goes he he's he goes to Venezuela for some like mission or something. But didn't they? It almost kind of like mirrors how they they sent like those few boats of people to Venezuela to kind of like do some like op operation, and the fishermen caught them. I'm trying to think. This was from like a few yeah, years well, ago. You're talking about that guy John Krasinski, who he should have just. He should have just retired after, after the, the office, office exactly. He's never like everything he's done since then has been awful. But yeah, I mean, honestly, I couldn't bring myself to watch the show Jack Ryan no, because that is just straight up. <laughs> it's just straight up CIA propaganda. And and we actually published a republished a video, an article at the Gray Zone by a really good researcher who focuses on this specifically, focusing on like the Pentagon and CIA and U.S. police departments who work with Hollywood and all these these produ production companies to make propaganda and all these shows. In, yeah, in and the, mili the military kind of like if you want to use their tanks, then they have the final say on the script, essentially. Exactly. And in the case of Jack Ryan, there were U.S. government agencies involved in making this propaganda, which is about this CIA agent going to Venezuela and overthrowing and killing the president in a coup 
what you mentioned, like in 2020, there was a very awful failed attempt at an invasion and trying to overthrow and extradite or like trying to kidnap President Maduro and send him back to the U.S. But like we, there's this really good researcher named Tom Secker, and he wrote a book about this. And he does he's done all these like FOIA requests, like Freedom of Information Act requests, looking at how like the CIA and FBI and Pentagon and different police agencies, police departments, they work directly with all of these producers. Like they, in many cases, they actually have the scripts and like they'll send the scripts to the CIA and like the army and the FBI and they will remove certain lines and change scenes around to push their propaganda. And the most blatant example of that is Jack Ryan, but this guy, this researcher, Tom Secker, he has an entire book about this and he found literally thousands of movies and TV shows, basically all of the big Hollywood blockbusters going back decades that have at least had some involvement of the US government in, in shaping their scripts. And like when we're talking about like the biggest blockbuster movies and TV shows that have shaped and created culture, yeah, not just in the US, but around the world, because people forget US culture is consumed around the world. And that, that means there's some good, of course, there's are a lot of really good US filmmakers, but a lot of it is shit. And that means that like this awful Hollywood shit, especially now with Netflix, is just forced around the world. Yeah, ex American exceptionalism, it just seems like this kind of brainwashing and, and you know, you know, I know this word gets used too much sometimes with gaslighting. It just seems like we're always constantly being like, we're the best, even if our country is falling apart and, you know, like, again, trust the billionaires or all these kind of messages that it's just like at a certain point, you're like, fucking come on, you know, like and it really permeates like a lot like, yeah, talking about music and culture, especially in TV, but even in like video games like Call of Duty, you know, they had like, what is it like that one where they they reenacted Reagan? And you're basically almost like what well, going to El Salvador to 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 massacre people or I don't know like what was the premise of the game, but it's like it really kind of flips history completely. You know, it's that classic Malcolm X quote where the media will have you believing that the oppressors are the victims and vice versa. And it's it's sort of like that that's that sort of message that's sold to us, you know. Yeah, and I actually have a really funny story about this. I was at a conference in Honduras, which was a conference of left-wing parties across Latin America, organized by the Libre Party. It was on the 10-year anniversary of the U.S.-backed coup in 2009 in Honduras, which was the Hillary Clinton State Department, the Obama administration. And that's so, another country you don't really hear about. You hear about how evil, you know, Cuba or Nicaragua. And meanwhile, we're basically supporting, you know, is a JOH, like a, a narco dictator for real reels you know yeah and in honduras after the 2009 coup backed by the u.s had one of the highest murder rates on earth it actually had the highest murder rate outside of a country not at war for a few years there thanks to the u.s coup but what's what's crazy about that anyway is that so i was in honduras in 2019 for the, on the 10th, 10th anniversary there was this conference of leftist parties across latin america and i was sitting next to this guy who is a former guerrilla, and he took up arms as a revolutionary socialist in El Salvador as part of the FMLN during the revolutionary struggle in the 1980s when the CIA was backing the 
military dictatorship and these far right death squads. So this guy, like, he's not only a socialist, like he's a former, I mean, he's still a revolutionary, but like he picked up arms as a revolutionary and was a guerrilla and amazing guy. And I was sitting there sitting next to him and I, I just happened to glance over. I didn't mean to, but like, I just, I glanced, like my eyes briefly caught his phone. And then I, I looked past, like, I wasn't trying to read his phone, but I saw briefly that he was reading an email from Netflix, which is all the newest, all the newest movies and TV shows on Netflix. <laughs> and it's just like, like, that's, that's the power. That's, that's soft power. That's cultural yeah, imperialism. The soft and like power. this guy, I mean, he, he's still a revolutionary. He's still an anti-imperialist. So like he'll watch these shows and he has a sophisticated critique of it. But the point is that like, Netflix still exists here in, in Nicaragua with the Sandinista government. Netflix is very popular. Like the point is that U.S. culture, soft power, is extremely powerful. And in both Venezuela and Nicaragua, I have repeatedly, on many occasions, gone to movie theaters and watched Hollywood movies. In, for instance, in Venezuela, I mean, I've, I live in Nicaragua, so I go to the movie theater all the time. But the last movie I saw in, when I was in Venezuela, I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by, you know, Quentin Tarantino. Right, right. I saw that dubbed in Spanish in a full theater in Venezuela in 2019, right? Because it came out in 2019, which was like at the peak of the U.S. coup attempt with Juan Guaido. And like in the, at the peak of the U.S. coup attempt in this country under a brutal U.S. blockade, I went to a movie theater and saw Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood dubbed in Spanish with a full packed movie theater. So it's like, even in these revolutionary countries that are under siege by the US, US culture is still like a powerful force. And in some cases, like that's not necessarily bad. Like I think Quentin Tarantino is a brilliant filmmaker, but it, there's also like, tons of insane bullshit Hollywood movies that are like, that should not be, should not be allowed to be street. I mean, China doesn't allow that, but like in Latin America, us culture is very powerful, unfortunately for better, for worse, mostly worse. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I feel like China, like people are like, Oh, you know, they're censoring stuff. It's like, dude, it's straight up propaganda. They should kick the fucking BBC out, kick those fools out. All they're doing is making up shit. Like, like what if we, China came here? I mean, they wouldn't even have to make up shit because we do have concentration camps here, but what if they went and did all that shit? Do you think America would put up with that stuff? But I mean, that's the, his, the hypocrisy of empire. That is American exceptionalism is we expect these countries to do things that we would never accept, like here, have a foreign military base on your soil, i.e. ours, you know? Well, I think what's interesting is that there's this idea that that it's part of this cultural imperialism, that the U.S. thinks that every country in the world should consume its culture. And they specifically think it should be consumption, not just like enjoyment, but actually part of the consumer economy. And then... But no, but other countries sh should not allow that to happen or should, that the U.S. should not allow other countries to do that. So, like, how many you how many Chinese movies and Chinese bands and Chinese TV shows are watched in the U.S.? Almost none. I think there's there's only one exception now, which is interesting when we're talking about cultural imperialism is Korean culture. Right. And there's a lot of really good Korean movies and TV shows, you know, like everyone now is talking about squid game which i watched 
it's it's a great show i mean there, i have critiques of it but like it's great in terms of how it's extremely well done it's in, in like i don't have you seen it no no i have to peep it it's at some point right. i know i have to check it but uh i won't spoil it but like no, it is brutal that's like good. watching it is is an emotionally brutal grueling experience but it's really well done and i saw a parasite a of, that was excellent you know yeah and parasite is a great good example um, Bung Joon Ho, who made that, the Korean filmmaker, he's a leftist. I mean, he's a socialist, and he has other really good movies. That some of them have actually—he's the rare exception of someone who like his movies are explicitly political. But I guess that like liberals are kind of—they have like this like weird like racial thing where they they think that like oh like like he he's like he's a safe Korean filmmaker, so we want to embrace him. But actually, he's very radical. And people might know his other movie, Snowpiercer, which was, have you have you seen Snowpiercer? No, I need to check that. I need to check that. Like Obama was like, Parasite was a great movie. No, I well, know he, it's like, kind of the funny. day after, like he, the day after he like gave a speech for four hundred thousand dollars to Wall Street, Obama was like, Parasite was a great movie, but me and like because they think they see these movies and they see them like these liberal, these neoliberal elites like Obama, they see these movies and and they don't they don't actually see the the deep political critique but in the case of parasite it's kind of hard to miss it but i can see how liberals miss it but in the case of snowpiercer it the entire movie it's just not spoiling it the entire movie is about like this this dystopian sci-fi like future where the, the human civilization is trapped on this train and they can't go outside of the train or they're going to die but the train is like totally it's totally compartmentalized based on class. So like all the, the poorest of the poor on the end of the train and all the rich elites are on the front of the train. And it's about like these people. Again, this is not spoiling this. This is happens at the beginning of the film. There's not there's not, there's not like some fine. You can there's, spoil there's, it. There's it's not okay. some. <laughs> no, but it, like it, there's not like some like M. Night Shyamalan style. Like, right, 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 like right. this is. The whole point of the movie is that the poor people start going forward on the train and start trying to fight a class war to get to the front of the train. Like that's the explicit intent of the movie. So like this guy, Bong Joon-ho is actually, and then he made another movie that was also really good before that. That's called the host. And the host is like a really good, like kind of, uh, it's kind of cheesy, like, a like a, body horror monster movie but the entire movie is about how the u.s military occupation of south korea exploits the country and and creates all these tensions with north korea and how the u.s military occupation which is like this which is like this this monster that is occupying seoul that they they should get they should kick out the monster like they should kick out the U.S. military so they could have peace and finally reunify with North Korea. Yeah, and like, he's mean, a very radical filmmaker and he's actually very mainstream. So like there are exceptions to it. It's it, there are like good exa examples of like these Korean filmmakers and TV shows that actually I think like are really subversive. Yeah, and we're probably just seeing them because you know South Korea is essentially another uh, military outpost. You know. I mean, it's just well, but the the other the other side of that that I was getting at is that K-pop, not as much in the U.S., but K-pop is like all over Latin America. It's really crazy. Wild. Actually, that's wild. 
Yeah, that's I wild. really hate K-pop. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's really, just, it's really just, hate it's K-pop. It's the worst aspects of pop music, but it is what it is. I'm not a general. But on Twitter in Nicaragua, every day, K-pop is trending. And especially with young people, especially young girls, but also young boys, like that's people under wild. like 20, K-pop is like massively popular. And and every country I've been in Latin America, in Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, not Bolivia, but but in Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, in Mexico, and every country I've been to, K-pop is very popular with young girls and some young boys too. That's wild. It's, it's, a, it's a massive cultural sensation, and almost all of it is awful, fucking awful music. But it's an example of like. Korea, the difference is that like in the US, at least overtly, I mean, we were talking about like the SOS Cuba thing and like that's obviously like a psyop, but like like the US government is not necessarily popularizing like like Migos and like Young Thug, right? Like like there's there is like an element of a slight uh, organic element of some of these, especially like hip hop, like some of these people that came from like a lot of the trap rappers who came from Atlanta, like obviously with some of like, whenever they make political comments, it's definitely they're often being like led into these propaganda campaigns backed by the U S government. But in the case of K-pop, it is, it is totally a state operation. Like BTS is like a Korean government creation. And BTS was just at the UN testifying like on behalf of the Korean government. And like K-pop, I think is actually an example in the future of like what the future of pop is going to look like, where you have these artists that even more than than the U.S. I mean, for decades, pop artists in the U.S. have been like cultivated since they were little kids by record companies to be products. And you, you see how it like fucks up people psychologically, like Britney Spears, who are like these these kid artists who since they're little teenagers, they're they're like cultivated and trained to be a product. Well, in the case of K-pop, it's at a whole new level where like all of these K-pop artists are like taken away from their families when they're teenagers. They're not allowed to have romantic relationship relationships. They're not allowed to make political comments. And they all work for like these insane, like neo-feudal companies that's that like wild. represent the Korean government. And like that's the future model of pop music around the world that's really wild i had no idea that it was that heavy-handed in that i mean i just again i agree with you it's generally terrible music so i haven't really scratched the surface in terms of the politics behind it but that's that's pretty wild i mean i think korea again it's kind of classic when you kind of get that sort of you know typical oh north koreans are so brainwashed it's like that in itself is is a proof of the brainwashing you know when we bombed what 20 percent plus of the population there we bombed every building you know it's just like we have bases in south korea we've you know kind of like again help put leaders in i mean that's another thing that you never ever hear about is like all the killings in south korea of all the like you know people who are socialists or communists you know it's kind of nuts or like, labor organized labor organized or yeah general, exactly like there's just thinking about hundreds of thousands of people killed insane in in the south over decades in a, a military dictatorship over decades until really the, the 90s and 
what, what's crazy about that also is that South Korea today, I mean, we were talking about, you know, getting back to just to like going for full circle, like the, the like idea behind the concept behind this album I just released through my project Peculated and about like neo-feudalism and techno-feudalism and big tech and social media and the metaverse and all that shit. Like Korea, South Korea is actually an, exa- an example of like, it's even worse. Like this ultra capitalism where there's all these shows like like this new show, which is a, a great critique of South Korean culture and capitalism and debt, which is uh, the show um, Squid Game. It's like over half of Koreans are like trapped in more debt that they can pay off. And like debt, the debt in Korea, household debt is larger than GDP. And like it, there's a South Korean capitalist consumer culture that was created largely by the U.S. and it's still occupied by 28,000 U.S. troops. And a lot of this stuff is like Brave New World stuff that they haven't even implemented yet in the U.S., but they're they're doing it in South Korea. And like that's why people like Bong Joon-ho, who made Parasite, like a lot of his stuff is a critique of that, that insane hyper-capitalism. But it's it's an example of how that of how culture is used as a kind of weapon. And we see in the US, it's very clear how culture is used as a weapon to reflect US foreign policy priorities. But in, in South Korea, K-pop is used as this, like it's backed by the state and it's like a huge part of the economy. And it's used as like a part of Korean soft power as part of Korean capitalism, South Korean capitalism. And like in Latin America, you can't not, know about it because it's everywhere it's so popular i went to this i went to the park the other day and there were like these young kids i mean it's cool to see them like have activities but like there were like these young kids doing they were they had like this competition and it was like doing k-pop that is just bizarre that is i did not have that on my bingo card that k-pop was big in nicaragua (laughs) no dude all over latin america that's wild that's all over latin america and it shows how like culture is part of this geopolitical battle. And in the case of the US, it's more explicit, but it's other countries too. And that's it's interesting for me to think about as a musician because I've always been into like underground music and punk and metal. And that's that's never gonna be like super mainstream. But music is a weapon. And I definitely think so. I mean, it's it's definitely steered, it's it steered me into you know at least the right direction in terms of you know and like I said sometimes you know even the bands you look up to you know you kind of look back at them now and sometimes their politics are not the best or whatever but you know in terms of just or or maybe it's not the most sophisticated take in terms of what you guys are really getting into the minutia of like what's going on in the world but just at least pushing in the right direction pushing against this kind of you know, American pie type of, you know, America is great and don't question it. So, yeah, it's a good thing. But uh, I know we've been rapping for a while, so I don't want to keep you from whatever <laughs> from your K-pop uh, dance routine practice. No. <laughs> but it, thank you. It's torture. Thank you so it's much torture. for uh, for uh, chatting and, and all that stuff. And uh, again, uh, Peculate. Uh, what's the name of the record again? Yeah, the the latest is called Your Own Personal Abyss. So I I always tell people, the description I I always use is that 
that this project I have peculate, it's like if you combine progressive metal and like hardcore with jazz fusion and avant-garde classical music. That's, it sounds weird. It sounds like those wouldn't all go together, but that's basically what it is. It's a big hodgepodge of no, it, weird it, experimental music. Yeah, no, there's a lot of, lot of different styles on it. It's, it's, it was definitely like, I was kind of ex- imagining something kind of brutal. You know, which it does get at times, but I was imagining that being like the whole time. I'm like, okay, this is like you were saying, this is how you get your aggression out in, in the world. But uh, it was, it's a, it's very varied. Yeah, it's it's interesting record for sure. But well, uh, it's funny. The last thing I just I'll say really quickly because I was hitting at this earlier is that all like the divisions within the metal community, like because I have a lot of metalhead friends who are into other kinds of metal that I don't like. So I actually really don't like, I kind of hate 80s metal, like like the or like the British wave of heavy metal. And What's even that band, like, a, like Death or something? I forget. Oh, well, Death is really good, but Death Death is the 90s, really. Okay. And Death was the beginning of, of death metal and progressive, like tech death. I, like, I'm actually really into technical death metal, but like, I'm saying that like, like I, I hate metal that has like cheesy Iron Maiden style singing, if you know what I mean. Right, right. I, I, and like Dio, I hate that stuff. And I, I like, no disrespect to people that like it. But what's funny is that I have metal friend, metalhead friends who said that my music is way too heavy for them. Because, <laughs> like, I actually, the metal I listen to is like death metal, deathcore, metalcore. Like, it's really heavy and it's mostly screaming. And there's blast beats. So it's funny. It's like I sent this album to some of my friends who were metalheads. And some of them were like, too many blast beats, too much screaming. <laughs> so it's just funny how to see that like even other, you know, metal is such a diverse, massive world. It's not even a genre. Metal is just like this massive world with tons of genres within it. And yeah, it's just, funny to just see like, that, like jazz. I mean, that's the nice thing about music is it, all these genres are always a lot more sophisticated. Like if you just kind of don't pay attention to jazz or metal, then you might have this sort of blanket thing like, yeah, that's Black Sabbath or that's John Coltrane. But there's just so many, so many different variations and facets. And it is kind of funny that even within that scene, like, you know, I learned a lot about jazz from my dad, but he was also kind of cuts off at like you know, the sort of straight ahead stuff. So, you know, when the free jazz came in, you know, he he was not a fan. In fact, his, his you know, you know why they call it free jazz? Because no one would pay for it. <laughs> it's, it's like stupid jokes. But I mean, it's basically like you're always going to have like those things where or even when, you know, blues musicians started using electric guitars. So then all the blues purists are like, you know, so it's like even within these divisions, you're going to have people that are going to say, no, I don't like that or blah, blah. But that's, that's just an aspect of the, you know, the music genre itself. It's always more well, varied than people think it is. And that's exactly how I think about it. Just like wrapping it up here, not to keep too long, but going back to Miles Davis, if you, if you remember, like there was this huge divide in the jazz community when, when, Miles Davis released released Bitches Brew. Yep, exactly. And Bitches Brew, when he had John McLaughlin play guitar and use distortion, and Bitches Brew was like the kind of one of the first major attempts at combining rock and especially experimental rock with jazz. This is back in 1970. And like and it was filmed in 1969, like a revolutionary time. And I kind of think of I mean, I love jazz fusion. I love 
Return to Forever and Weather Report and all those bands. And like the attempt to combine jazz with rock back in the 70s, 60s and 70s and into the 80s. And I think now that like, I'm kind of part of a very small scene. It's not that big, but there's a very small scene of us who are kind of doing something very similar with metal, combining jazz with metal. Yeah, no, I, there are a few bands that, like that, I like, said, it's just it's an approach. It's almost like taking those, you know, the aesthetics of jazz and then you kind of put it within a sort of, you know, metal kind of, you know, again, it doesn't have to be even a traditional metal thing. I know you used a lot of strings and stuff on some of your tracks, but kind of just bring it in into that format, like uh, another early fusion band that i like a lot is uh, the drummer tony williams he had tony williams lifetime so, so good those early so tony great. williams lifetime are literally jazz rock they rock out you know so i mean sometimes sometimes the later fusion stuff it gets kind of schmaltzy but you know it's all good yeah, you know? yeah. but In i mean i think yeah exactly exactly like the early weather report i'm down with for sure but uh it's too bad you see and again it's kind of funny with like the politics it's like it took me years later they'll learn that like Chick Corea was a Scientologist. It's just wild sometimes, <laughs> you know, you like, you just like, you're like, what, why? But you know, it is what it is, right? Yeah, I mean, in that case, the thing about jazz is most of it is there's no lyrics. So I mean, there was like a lot of black power stuff and and space is the place. Like I love Sun Ra and like that stuff is really cool politically. But yeah, the other stuff is not really, I mean, there's it's always political in the sense that it deals with race relations and racism in the in, in the U.S. and like, Miles I think Davis, I think you know. I, I think a lot of spirit jazz gets political, you know, and and they had like a lot of almost like spaces, like what was that place in Brooklyn? I think it was called the East, that you know, like Pharaoh Sanders and like one institute yeah. would play at, but they would also do like political stuff too, and almost like was almost like a seemed more of like a loft vibe than a um than an actual jazz club you know so yeah definitely i mean like for me it's not a coincidence that like the black art movement going back to like baraka and right like the the great black art black art poets and and all that like that was kind of coincident with like one of the best moments in jazz of like this this like peak of like revolutionary experimental time and like I love all that stuff so much. So, you know, not not in any way, in any shape or form, am I trying to like, <laughs> in any way, compare myself with Miles Davis, who is like a genius that like up there, like with one of the greatest music musical geniuses in human history. But I, the point is that I'm saying and, is that and like, he also starred on Miami Vice. Let's not forget that. <laughs> don't don't remind me. <laughs> but definitely not definitely not a. Uh, Definitely not one of the high moments in his career. I mean, he he did have a few clunkers of albums too. But the point I'm saying is that like there's this kind of there's this kind of scene right now to kind of understand my music, kind of where it where it comes part of. There's a there's a scene of jazz artists who are really influenced by metal and who some of them who even play metal. So there's there's so people who want to explore more potentially, there's this band called Animals as Leaders, which the guitarist is totally revolutionary and I would put him up there with someone kind of like Miles Davis who is just totally revolutionizing not only the way that people think about about metal and jazz but also guitar and his name is Tosin Abasi and Tosin Abasi is kind of like this Miles Davis figure in guitar who he popularized eight string guitars he's a jazz player who plays metal and he has his band 
animals as leaders, which is jazz metal. And then there's also this guy who is Armenian named Tigra, Tigran Hamasayan. And Tigran Hamasayan is combining like mashuga with jazz. But like I combine mashuga and jazz, but it's more mashuga than it is jazz. Whereas he combines mashuga with jazz, but it's more jazz than mashuga. And like there are a few artists out there who are doing like brilliant groundbreaking things with their music. And I actually think that it's a really exciting time in terms politics is, is garbage in so many places, especially the U S but music right now is really interesting. And if people, for some reason, if they like my weird music, then I would recommend like checking out some of the other stuff because there's a really interesting scene around like jazz metal and, I'm a very small part of it. It's, there's a lot of other brilliant musicians doing much better work than I could do. Well, that's all good. That's dope. Yeah, I'll have to check some of that. I remember, like I said, I'm not a massive metalhead, but I remember uh, John Zorn did some kind of metal jazz stuff. He had a side project called Painkiller. Naked City. Well, Naked City is the shit. This was a, this was I, like a year or two after Naked City. Naked City is one of my favorite records of all time. It's so good. I got to well, see them. Well, it was them. a band. Yeah. There, there were multiple records. Yeah, there's multiple Naked records. City. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, but that one, I forget the one that has like, I don't know, 20 tracks on each side. It was like New Jersey Scum Swamp. There was like some tracks I used to play all the time. Um, he also had Painkiller. Painkiller, which was, I think, the Napalm Death drummer. Um, and it was actually more metal. And Mike Patton, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's a, that was a cool project from like the early 90s. But yeah, I'll have to check some of those bands out. But uh, again, Ben, thanks so much for uh, rapping. And uh, keep, yeah, up, keep up all the good work, people. You should subscribe to his Rockfin and check out the num- numerous, numerous articles on uh, Grey Zone. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. It was it was fun, James. And thanks for for letting me just like you know, shoot the shit and talk about music because the reality is that with, with music, I don't actually get a, a big chance to talk about the stuff. I almost always talk about politics. So Jim, you, you prefer Jim or James? Jim, uh, Jim is fine. Yeah, Jim. It's yeah. all good. But yeah, no, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.